Hey, podcast listeners, I want you to be among the first to hear about Somli, a new way to discover, shop, and interact with wineries. Somli is an online marketplace where wine enthusiasts can explore wineries, join wine clubs, read reviews, and buy or give the gift of Texas wine. Similar to Etsy, Somli enables artisan wineries to sell their wine direct to consumer and cut out the middleman. Somli's marketplace will be launching in Texas soon. To learn more or apply to join, visit somli.com. That's S-O-M-M-L-Y.com. And be sure to follow somli.wine on Instagram. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 38. Today, you'll hear my recent interview with Daniel Collada. He's a sommelier and managing partner at Venovium Partners. Venovium is unique in a lot of ways, including that they operate in something of a negociant model, where each wine offered is made by a different Texas winemaker. I love talking to Daniel about how the Texas wine industry has grown, how Texas wines aren't always respected, and I even put him on the spot to name some Texas winemakers that he thinks are underrated. And as always, there's Texas wine news, including the inaugural Texas wine auction, wineries for sale, dates to put on your calendar, and mentions of Texas wine in national publications. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Mark your calendar for Saturday, April 9th for the inaugural Texas wine auction in Fredericksburg. This is a brand new event being promoted by Texas Wine Revolution, a nonprofit. The event will feature live and silent auctions, musical performances, and great food and wine pairings presented by Texas chefs and wineries. The Texas Wine Auction was developed to bring together a collective of Texas wineries and winemakers to showcase the beauty of Texas-grown wine and raise money for some incredible organizations, including the Hill Country Memorial Foundation and an endowment to the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Viticulture and Fruit Lab. This year, the featured wineries are William Chris Vineyards and Lost Draw Cellars, and there's a long list of additional participating wineries. Chris Brendrett is president of the Texas Wine Revolution. Of course, he's the co-founder of William Chris Wine Company. Chris says, This auction was formed to help benefit the community in which we live and to forward research and development in the Texas wine industry to help our fellow farmers. The last two years have hit our industry hard with the ongoing COVID pandemic, so it's important for us as wine leaders to do our part in helping. We look forward to bringing together the community for a give-back evening filled with an exciting chef-curated dinner and the finest wines in Texas. Well, tickets are on sale now. Pricing is $250 for individual tickets, or $5,000 will get you a table for eight. There are also some special winemaker dinners happening the night before on Friday, April 8th, so you can make a weekend of it in Fredericksburg. I also noticed that the organizers are looking for volunteers for the event, and you could submit a request on their website to indicate that you're interested in volunteering. Find out more by visiting TexasWineAuction.com. A Texas winery just won a big award at the American Fine Wine Competition, a competition for smaller wineries that has been held annually since 2007. There were only 250 wines evaluated, which tells me that judges got to take their time with each wine. 
the Best of Show Red Wine and Best of Class for Other Red Single Varietal was won by Silver Spur Wineries 2019 Alianico from Comanche County. The press release really hit the nail on the head, and it quoted the president of the wine competition, Sherry Gurman. She said, Panels of independent judges who taste wine, as these people do, are able to arrive at non-biased conclusions that benefit the consumer and the entire industry. She went on to cite the Texas winner as an example. She said, Silver Spur is a small winery in a state not known for top wines, but it won best of class for other red single varietal and best of show. You can bet that it would not have won either, but for blind tasting. The other winners of best in class and best in show were from California, except for a best in class dessert wine that was from Ohio. Silver Spur's really been impressing me lately. Remember their Silver Spur Tanat won the Cross Timbers City of Granbury inaugural wine competition last fall. There's been a lot of chatter in Texas Wine Facebook groups about the benefits or the drawbacks of wine competitions, and I'd love to delve into that more on a future episode. But I like that a Florida-based competition with judges from all over who are writers, sommeliers, buyers, and educators, they've just gotten to taste Texas wine, possibly for the first time. And their opinion of it was high enough that they awarded it the best in class for the whole competition. So I call that a win. Congratulations to Silver Spur for representing Texas so well. And by the way, I'll be judging at the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition this summer. So y'all please send up some delicious Texas wine to New York. Heads up, all you future winery owners, there are 10 wineries listed for sale on the website VineSmart. I've talked about a few of these previously, but the new ones that caught my eye are the Contemporary Johnson City Winery, 290 Vinery, also Stone Ledge Winery and Vineyard in Lomita, and Umbra Winery at La Buena Vida Vineyards in Springtown. Wineries for sale aren't always identified by name, but it's pretty easy to find out which winery it is based on the photos that they share. If you listened to the last episode with winemaker and consultant Benedict Rhine, you heard her talk about her educational programs. Well, the first one is on the calendar, and it's February 26th. Join Benedict to learn more about the dirt, the vine, and the fruit. She calls the program Voyages to the Center of the Terroirs. Find out more at benedictrhine.com. And there's another Texas wine educational opportunity. It's to become a specialist of Texas wine. Dr. Russ Kane is offering this course through the Texas Wine School, and it starts in March. There are three evening courses that meet online, and there's a wine tasting component, too. Find out more at the link I'll post in the show notes or by going to the thetexaswineschool.com. Ray Wilson and her boutique brand La Valentia got a mention on Forbes.com by writer Kathy Hugh in her article, Weekend Wine Play, Rhone Varieties One by One. Kathy mentioned the La Valentina 2020 Carignan. All the La Valentia wines are available to the wine club members and at the Texas AVA Tasting Room in West Austin. She said that she got the La Valentia Carignan from a wine club called Women Own Wineries. And in the article, she compliments the winemaking techniques and said, The end result is a friendly and accommodating wine. Cinnamon, strawberry, and elegant were the most distinctive notes for me. I can imagine serving it in any number of situations in the kitchen and at the table. And finally, there's a new article in Travel and Leisure that hits a bunch of the places that we all love in the Texas wine country. 
It's called This Epic Texas Road Trip Visits Underrated Vineyards and Rolling Hills Blanketed in Bluebonnets. One notable thing about this article is that it bases its winery list on the winners of the 2021 Texas Monthly Vintners Cup. There are just three wineries mentioned, but I thought that was an interesting angle. The author recommends Slate Theory Winery, Lost Jaw Cellars, and William Chris. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This podcast is sponsored by Texas Wine Marketing Assistance Program, a program at the Texas Department of Agriculture that assists the Texas wine industry in promoting and marketing Texas wines and educating the public about the Texas wine industry. Commissioner Sid Miller and his team at the TDA are working to open new doors and new markets for the thriving Texas wine industry. Commissioner Miller said he's proud to be a sponsor of our podcast because we're telling the story of Texas wine. It's a story with a rich history that includes many inspiring Texans. Great wine starts in the vineyard, and Texas vineyards span across our great state. Every Texan should know that Texas not only grows grapes and makes wine, but Texas is the fifth largest wine-producing state. Texas is bigger than France, and like France, offers a wide range of growing environments, grape varieties, and wine styles. You can learn more about TDA's Texas wine marketing efforts by visiting uncorktexaswines.com. My guest today is Daniel Collada, sommelier and managing partner at Vinovium. You may know Vinovium as the winery on the north side of 290 that's open late, but there's an interesting and unique business model operating behind that gate. Daniel and I first met in 2017 when he was teaching a class, Texas versus the World, pouring Texas wines alongside wines of the world to introduce more people to Texas wine. Daniel knows so much not only about Texas wine, but wines from all over the world, and also logistics and compliance and much more. But it's the focus on relationships that I think makes Daniel and Vinovian Partners unique in the Texas wine industry. Here's Daniel. Thanks for joining me today, Daniel. Tell me, where does your Texas wine story start? How did you get into Texas wine? Uh, Texas wine started in 2010. Just to kind of give you some context, like when you're studying wine, the way that I was studying wine in those days, you know, we put so much emphasis on the ability to travel and go and see the places that we're actually talking and drinking wines from. The problem with that is that if you don't have any money, how do you do that? And so uh, very quickly, I learned that in our very own backyard, there was a there was a wine industry. And so it really started with the idea that I needed to, to, to become a better wine professional and student that I needed to be out uh, in, in, a, in, in an industry uh, on a regular basis and very quickly learned that the Texas wine industry was something. Uh, and that's kind of how it started. So it started out just by visiting uh, wineries and doing the consumerism part of it uh, while trying to be somewhat academic about it. But then that kind of led down a different path. So it really started by the realization that where I was living, there was a wine industry within an hour's drive of me. And you were studying, I believe, through the International Wine and Spirits Guild. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I'm curious. I know the Wine and Spirit Education Trust doesn't even have any content on Texas wine. Does the International Wine and Spirits Guild have any content on Texas in their program? Uh. 
Short answer, yes, um, but it's really up to the discretion of the local teacher, the instructor in that market to add that to the curriculum. You know, because you teach in so many different places, teaching about Texas wine in Washington is not necessarily that important. You know, even though you mention it as a producing state uh, in terms of kind of the, the data and the statistics behind that. But kind of the deep dive into the region is not really important for that local market. And in, in, in the given class, you only have so much time on an on a up and coming region to really mention. But in Texas, particularly for the level one and a, and a deeper dive in the level two, I spend a decent amount of time on on Texas, <clears throat> mainly because it's where we are. Level one is really important to talk about phylloxera uh, and obviously uh, TV Munson, Thomas Volney Munson and the impact that he had on the world of wine, which kind of precipitated out of Texas. So I think we talk about Texas in indirect ways. Uh, level two is where we really start to talk about kind of the growing areas in the regions more so than the history. Uh, but the history is very important because it has global implications. So we try to talk about that in, in level one. We do spend some time on phylloxera and the fallout of phylloxera and, and kind of the what ended up happening as a result of that. Cool. So, Tell me about your first um, your first job or your first foray into Texas wine. <laughs> uh, my first job is a different story than my first <laughs> job. Uh, my first job was at the Gap. <laughs> okay, okay, very relevant. Um, uh, first job in Texas wine. Um, I don't know if there was a first job in Texas wine. I think that. The, the whole thing started pretty quickly. So 2010, I was studying wine and I started to realize that there was wineries around me, started visiting Texas wineries. 2011 um, was the year that I met my business partner, Craig Mayer, uh, because I was teaching uh, an advanced sommelier course in Austin. Um, and from that class is how Venovium came about. So I think my first job, if you will, in terms of trying to generate income from the Texas wine industry came really from Venovium, uh, which started in 2000. Started The, the idea of, of Venovium came out in 2011. We went into business in 2012, uh, and then we ended up getting our permits in 2013. So I think if, if I remember the timeline, Craig and I met, he was a student of mine in a class in November 2011. By the June of 2012, we had kind of fleshed out an idea for a company called Venovium Partners. And what does Venovium look like now? Oh man! Tell, tell um, us all about Venovium. Uh, Venovium—that's <laughs> a—it's a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's kind of evolved it, it, a lot along the ways, uh, and the the basis of Venovium starts with that the idea that it's no, nothing that we're doing is new. Uh, it is a modification of what has happened before us globally, historically in the wine industry, and we're applying lessons learned in those from those pr uh, previous experiences and previous businesses and. Uh, applying it to the Texas wine industry, but the limitation of that is really based off of the permits and the legal structure of the TABC in Texas. So how do we, how the, it's going to go back to what a negotiant is and how do you apply that business model to the Texas industry, given the, the structure of the legal framework, the compliance framework, the TABC framework to do that kind of business. And so th for me, it was, 
we're not doing anything new, um, <clears throat> but we're applying it to a new industry, a new budding industry, if you will. Uh, and how does that how does that work? And so Venovium, by design, was always meant to be a collaborative partner. Um, you know, Venovium, the word itself, you know, that's kind of what we kind of hang our hat on is a Latin word that means on the wine road. But the full winery name is Venovium Partners. So it literally it's translated into on the wine road partners. And that's really what defines our business model, which by definition, you know, whether you see it that way or not, is kind of what a negotiant is. A negotiant is a French term that dates back to the 11th century, which is really the idea of a wine merchant. But the idea of a wine merchant has evolved over the centuries and become very, very specialized. But in small growing areas or emerging growing areas, the role of the negotiant still plays a really important role, mainly because <clears throat> small producers, small growers don't have access to big market ideals or big market resources. Uh, and and w- what does that really mean ultimately for how we how we run our business? Well, there's many models around the world for what a negotiant is. And again, over time, they become specialized. But really what a negotiant is kind of at its heart and soul is it's kind of this this body, this person, this entity that exists between the production side of the wine industry, whether it's on the vineyard or the winemaking side and the market side. And so we position ourselves to provide a service, an expertise, whatever that is, to help bring those wines to market. Now, whether that is to identify a market or whether that is to create wines for a specific market or whether that is to package wines in a certain way for a particular customer, it's all about how do you facilitate bringing wines to a market? And that's really what the negotiant does. The case studies around the world, there's really two big ones. You look at Bordeaux and you look at Burgundy. Those are the kind of the classic examples of what a negotiant can do. And on one hand, in the Burgundy model, you have negotiants that have their hands very much tied up in the growing and the production of wine. Uh, And they consolidate wines, they put their brands on them, and they help market and, and, and bring those wines to market. On the Bordeaux side, those negotiants have nothing to do with the growing and the production of wine, that they have everything to do with the logistics of wine. Um, and so for us, given the, again, the, the, the framework and the structure that we have to abide by, according to TABC, the way that we apply that business model to the Texas wine industry is a little bit of both. We, we have the ability as a G permit winery to, to process and crush and produce wines. Um, we also have the ability to self-distribute our wines. So the, the, the winery permit in Texas allows us to kind of do a combination of both. Um, for us, uh, the idea of making wines is not in the traditional sense that most people think of. When I say we collaborate on the winemaking, people don't really understand what that means until you kind of paint the picture. But because we're not, a, a, we don't have a winemaking team on staff, it allows us to go out and cultivate relationships with other winemakers and and work with them to make wines kind of for our style, our brand um, that we can then bring to market. So it allows us to kind of cherry pick as a one way to say it, but it allows us to cultivate relationships with people that we know can make really great wines consistently. And we're not limited by what we grow and we're not limited by what one winemaker's abilities are. And so from, from, from our perspective, it creates consistency vintage over vintage and allows us to create a wine program 
um, which is kind of how the terms that we use, even in the tasting room, our, our job is to create a, a program of wines uh, that one are non-competing, but fill in the gaps of every style of wine, whether it's a uh, light body to full body, dry to sweet, whatever it is. Um, it allows us to go out and, and either f- contract fruit or buy wines that are either not yet into wine, just must or wine and tank or wine and barrel at really we're buying wines or producing wines at every step of the process and, and finding a way to market and sell those wines. Um, for us, the idea of, okay, we're in the Texas wine industry. There's, there's, you know, 10 years ago in the Texas wine industry or and even beyond that, those of us that are are aware that even want Texas wines was even being produced, we know that there's a there's a huge amount of bias against Texas wines, I, and I, and it's weird. I don't know where the bias really comes from. Obviously, there's been bad wines in the past, but every region has bad wines. You can go to France today and buy really terrible wines, you know. So it's not like bad wines aren't still produced. I I I, I don't know. Maybe it's like the 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 cliche of. Texas cowboy boots and spurs and guns and wines don't mix, but for whatever reason, uh, Texas has had a bad reputation with wine. I think then somehow the the idea that uh, hot climates are can't produce good wines kind of proliferated, and maybe that's the 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 wine industry focusing on European wines, and we're supposed to kind of follow in line with what the European model is, which is a much cooler growing area overall compared to everywhere else. But I think history would say otherwise. History says that the birthplace of wine is in a warm, hot climate. Uh, We look at places in the Southern Hemisphere like Australia and South Africa, very hot climate. So there's, there's not only past precedent, but there's current precedent for making really world-class wines in warm, hot climates. And, And so I think that the more we tell that story, that myth goes away. But 10 years ago, um, the bias still persists. So how do you deal with that? And, you know, for us, we knew that there was a huge amount of education and awareness building that had to happen, not just for our brand, but for Texas wine in general. And that's kind of where the nonprofit came about, um, because we knew that the, the time that we would be dedicating to creating awareness and educating people about Texas wine really wasn't um, a Venovium initiative. It was kind of a personal initiative. And the nonprofit that you refer to is the Texas Wine Journal? Yes. Yeah, that kind of also went through iterations. It started out as the uh, Texas Wine and Food Consortium. We ended up dropping the food part because we were like, what, what are we going to do with that? That seemed like a distraction. Maybe we were just hungry when we came up with the name. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, that eventually became the Texas Wine Journal. And we can talk about that. You know, that was a really impactful thing for me personally and professionally. But um, but on the Venovium side, it's like, how do you deal with this bias of Texas wine? And the, 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 the direct answer is get people to taste more Texas wines. That's the easiest way to deal with that. The problem with that is you can't get Texas wines in a lot of places, um, whether in terms of on-premise restaurant, wine bar, places like that. Uh, very limited. I mean, there's the go-tos and the go-tos are good, you know, but it's not a variety of options. Uh, And then the other way is um, through retail, but even retail, you know, the, the, the wine department at your local retail shop 
10 years ago for Texas wines was very limited um, and not really representative of the current state of affairs in the industry. So uh, the, the idea is how do we get people to taste more Texas wines? How do we drive brand awareness uh, and how do we get it to the point where people can get easier access to it? And all of that, those questions were answered by putting wines in keg, um, putting wines in keg. One was a, was a solution first and foremost for the business. It allowed the business to, uh, offer a product that was consistent every single time without any concerns of waste or spoilage or corkage. Uh, it allowed them to maintain their margin as a result of really buying more wine for the dollar up front, but also wasting less wine on the back end in terms of not being able to deplete the bottle. Um, so first and foremost, it was a solution for the business and that worked. Along with that solution came some, 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 I guess, road bumps in the way and the in the sense that the business had to figure out how to accommodate the solution because it was a bigger piece of thing that they had to put behind the bar but that's been a minor road bump uh, or, or kind of um, issue as we kind of progress because the trend of keg wine really took off and and that's helped a lot the second thing is that when you talk about wine and keg and it's on tap someplace it's a guaranteed by the glass so that means more than likely there's going to be more of that product sold than a wine that's in a bottle. That's usually how that works. Um, so you, you, you sold more wines by the glass, which means more people taste the Texas wines. And because it's by the glass, it's usually the wine that is priced according to be by the glass. And so it's sold more and therefore people see that brand more. Um, and so keg wines really solved a lot of the, the angst, around Texas wines for our consumers, but also allowed us to introduce a whole host of solutions for a business, um, particularly as we moved in the last 10 years also to this vineyard to table movement, or excuse me, farm to table movement and sourcing locally. And I think that there's still a ton of work to do there. I mean, we push local sourced ingredients, but where's the Texas wine on your wine list? You know, like I, I, at some point, not that we have to be assholes about it, but we got to call these people out, not in a, maybe not in a public forum, but at least amongst our peers and our friends, like, you know, just acknowledge the fact that they're promoting a local story, but they don't have any local wines. They have local beers and local spirits. And that's a, that's an interesting thing. Is the keg wine category still growing or after we get past this COVID slump, will it be growing again? What do you anticipate? <laughs> I don't know. That's a really that's a really great question. Um, so it's, it's, what's interesting is that the company that created the keg wine space and then subsequently removed the keg wine space uh, is Whole Foods, you know? And again, I, I call them out for what it is. I mean, they, they had the foresight to understand that people wanted to walk around their, their grocery stores with a glass of something in their hand. Kegwine was the perfect solution for that. They had reduced their waste in terms of their green footprint. They allowed <clears throat> to sell a really consistent product every single time. And then and then the doors opened and they put kegwines in all their stores. And then I also got to give credit to Dukeman Winery because they kind of, with a bigger brand than us, had, had the ability to fulfill that need and put a Texas product in those spaces. And so from our perspective, <laughs> 
they opened the door in a lot of ways to not only the idea of the keg wine, but the idea of Texas keg wine. And then we came in with different varietals or whatever, our, our kind of style, um, and piggybacked on, on that effort. So, so Whole Foods was tremendous in that effort, and people saw that. Um, and, you know, probably 2012, 13, 14, going up all the way until 2020, keg wine was a trending category. Um, and then COVID happened, and then restaurants shut down. Uh, and then some people like the keg wine sales obviously dropped because people couldn't go in. There was no BTG. There was no on-premise consumption. Um, and so I think that the reality is, is that the solution is too grand to not at least consider it. And I think that that's the staying power for the category. I think when you get concepts like, um, like 60 Vines out of Dallas that has multiple locations, or you get concepts now like in Austin, like Wonderlust that's got 60 wines on tap, or even, you know, you see them all over the place now, these self-serve concepts that wasn't legal really five, three years ago that are now legal. Those are all, if they're on, if it's wine, those are all keg wines. So I think that there's a new business model that has come out of COVID in the sense of self-serving um, situations, which will drive the keg wine space. I do think that um, that it's going to be a challenge. I think that new bars are going to have to contend with the idea of how do I accommodate the infrastructure to support keg wine? Um, and then the bars that currently have keg wines, do I want to keep it? And the, I guess the good thing about a wine on tap is you can always convert it to a beer on tap or to a cocktail on tap. So that infrastructure is not lost. It's just re repurposed, if you will. Sure. Um, so the cool thing about the Venovium winery, which I guess opened in 2016 in Johnson City, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So um, we, the permits technically got approved in 2013 and we started in Lakeway, but we didn't have a tasting room there. And then we okay. moved to Johnson City in 2016. Uh, so when so you go we, in, you see the fruit of the, the keg wine labor because you've got a whole row of, uh, of kegged wines to pick from. And like you said, because every wine is made from a different winemaker, it is all about hearing the story and the vineyard and the relationship. And um, so tell me about the tasting experience there at Bonovium. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you're asking about that, that it's, it's a challenge and a, and a blessing all at the same time, because I think that the, sorry, that's Nacho. Hey, Nacho. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the challenge is that the stories are compelling and there's a lot of stories to tell. The challenge is there's not a lot of time to effectively tell those stories in a tasting situation. Um, so the, the, I guess we, there's three, there's three things that we have to cram into our experience and we're, and I, I think we, we could always improve upon it. Um, and, and I think that this is our, this is our, how we mature as a company is trying to figure out how to make all these stories fit. You have the story of the wine, which is really broken down into the story of the vineyard and the story of the production. Then you have the story of the winemaker that we chose to collaborate with. Like why, why is that person involved? Um, and then the third story is what's the Venovium element to that? Like what role did we bring to that relationship and that process to create that wine? And I think that we do a good job talking about the, the vineyard and the winery side and the winemaker side. I think we, we have neglected to tell our role to some extent in some of these wines that are really special um, just because of of the ability, the time to, to make that happen. But I think that as we mature and, 
and uh, we, f- we figure things out slowly but surely that the, the, the role that we play um, creates the roles for the others to play. And like those wines don't create themselves unless we're involved. And I think that that's a really important element to, to our future marketing and social media and all that is, is to bring that out. But the experience, super casual. We want, you know, when you come to the, the tasting room is an old house. We call it the growler lounge because we fill growlers um, when we can afford them. Pre-COVID supply chain allowed for us to get growlers. Post-COVID, who, who knows? So we're filling bottles and crown capping them. We call the tasting room the lounge. But it's a very casual environment. Uh, it was an old house built in the '70s that we renovated. So you know, our hashtag is "Welcome Home," and you want to be here. And so it, it's meant to be a very approachable, comfortable, uh, non-pretentious place where you can hang out for a while um, and and have really good wines and have us an educated staff that that will serve them to you and and chat you up if you wanted to, to have some conversation. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's unique for sure on, on the Hill Country, at least in our opinion, but every winery is unique in the Hill Country, according to their own opinion. <laughs> well, and you're also, you're also open late. So that's cool. Yeah. Being open late, I think is, it fits our personalities, right? I, mm-hmm. I want to drink wine when people want to drink wine. And sometimes you want to drink wine after five, six o'clock. Um, so occasionally, and I, think, I mean, <laughs> occasionally. Yeah. Right. And, uh, <laughs> And also the, the, the creatures, you know, the, the creature comforts of things, the, the animals, I think, are important, particularly, one, because I live here, two, because people want to, if they're going to leave their house for an entire day, what do they do with their dog? You know, sure. bring your dog. Like, we want, we want you to have, it's a family, family affair, if you will, um, to some extent. You've yeah. got a great outdoor space and, and indoor space, too. So there's something for everybody, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. Um. Could you give me an example of maybe one wine that you want to talk about that the Vinovium component was especially important and how that came together? You mentioned that it was an important part of your story that you don't often get to tell. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, so the, the, the Vinovium brand is all keg products. There is the one non keg product, which is the sketch brand. And I think that that's one topic of conversation, but I think that from the Vinovium side, the keg wine side, um, uh, we produced a wine in 2020, released it in 2020, um, that we ended up calling it social distance because it was the theme of the day. And that, in that year, um, uh, my, my terrible joke is that it's, it's a wine so good. You want to drink it by yourself. Um, <laughs> but, but the story behind that wine is that wine was, was, was produced and sourced and made <clears throat> to be a wine that would be bottled under the sketch brand. And the sketch brand for us is kind of our, our grand Ven. I use that word in a, in a loose way, but it, it's the wine that we, we try to make it the best wine that we can compared to all the other wines. Not that the other wines aren't good, but it's, it's lower yielding wine. It's more production wine. It's older vine wine. It's just more expensive to produce and therefore more expensive on the market, but the wine social distance is unique. It's the first time in our history where we sourced grapes from three different places, sent them to three different winemakers. And then we came along and made the blend, you know? So, so the idea that there's relationships on the vineyard side and we're, and we're helping to, to, 
to sell that fruit or buy that fruit. And then there's relationships on the production side and we're helping to pay them to make wines to a style that, that we think we can then ultimately use. And then we're coming in and building the blend. So the idea that there's seven people or seven relationships, more than seven people, but seven different relationships involved to make a single product, I think speaks to the volume of what a negociant can do. It's really all about knowing the pieces that are out there and seeing if those pieces can fit together. And if they can, great. If, if they can fit together in a perfect way, even better. Um, and I think that that wine, more than really any other wine, in terms of the, the scale of the business model working, I think we really see it in that, in that model. The sketch brand is similar, but it's, it's, less pe- it's less relationships involved to make the product. Um, but it is a compelling, it's a, it's a compelling product because it involves a local artist producing local art on the label. And so that relationship is then added to the story. And you got to tell the story behind the art, plus the person who made the art, plus the vineyard, plus the winery, plus Venovium, <laughs> you know, that the story sure. starts to compound in a, in a really beautiful way. Um, I think, again, our challenge is, is our ability to tell all of that story in a, in a cohesive way in the tasting room in one session. So I think for people that really gravitate towards Vinovium, they soon very quickly realize that we're kind of like a, like an onion in a way, like there's many layers to what we're doing and you can't get all the story in your first session with us. So. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard of sketch wine, I thought, well, there's, I've never heard of that. Let me see what I can find out. And I was uh, delighted to see that that was a Vinovian product. So I do want to spend a minute on that and let you tell me about the backstory and uh, also some of the awesome awards that you've won just recently for the sketch. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, So sketch sketch is a byproduct of the nonprofit and it's and it's creation, if you will. Um, So in 2012, when we when Craig and I got together and said, let's create a company that company, Venovium Partners, actually started out as a consulting company for the Texas wine industry. We we didn't really have the ambition to become a G permit winery, um, at least at that time. The whole idea was we knew that keg wines were something to to look at and pay attention to. And from there, we basically kind of co-opt a group of seven wineries to put wines in keg f- under their brand that we would then go out and market and sell. So kind of like a distribution representation kind of relationship. But anyway, so, so that kind of led to um, conflicts with logistics and it became a whole lot easier to do our own self-distribution. So that required us getting our own permits and having our own warehousing space to consolidate all these things. Um, And so that's kind of how Venovium actually turned into a G permit winery. Going back to this idea that education and awareness was huge, Venovium has its part to play in that, which is kegging wine and getting that into more people's hands and mouths and all the things. But the talking part, the the education part, the awareness part was totally something else. Um, And so that's kind of where the the nonprofit came in. Uh, Eventually, it was, again, started as a, a consortium, wine and food consortium. And then we dropped the food uh, and then created a program as part of the nonprofit called the Texas Wine Journal. The Texas Wine Journal would then go on to kind of establish itself as its own kind of entity, if you will, like it operated as its own entity. But the whole point of the Texas Wine Journal was to rate and evaluate Texas wines and provide very transparent feedback uh, 
to the producer. That way they can really see what the panel thought. There, there was no motivation to give out awards. Um, it was more about um, how to score a wine, but a score based off of certain criteria and a, and a, and a, and a grading scale that made sense for, for the wine and for the producer to have some transparency about uh, what was being shown. So what that meant is I organized a panel of judges and, and the panel of judges was profound in the sense that it created consensus among a large group of people that were professionals, but it also created a situation where more professionals were tasting Texas wines on a regular monthly basis. So it gave the local industry access to local wines, which they had never had before. And as a result of that, I mean, a lot of them started to not only become advocates for the local industry, but started to place Texas wines in their own programs. And for better or worse, whether you like the reviews or not, the the exposure to the trade of Texas wines is still something that's very much needed in our industry. Most of them still have no idea what is happening on a year to year basis. And so, so that, that was a powerful part of that, but organizing the panel meant that again, you're creating more and more relationships with your fellow people, fellow wine people in the industry. And that was a beautiful thing. And one of the persons that I recruited to be on the panel was Julia Dixon, who was at the time the sommelier at Perlis in Austin. And uh, she had worked at Jeffrey's and, you know, you know, just an uber professional. And we hit it off and we became really good friends. And in 2000, so the, the Texas wine journal started in 2013, 14 and kind of lasted through 2017. Um, but in 2000, late 2017, um, there was an opportunity to, to work together in a Texas wine brand. The idea that, that Texas at the time, and this has changed to some extent now that there's a gap in the Texas wine market, which is a gap for a, a brand that's not attached to, uh, a winery, let's say like a family owned and operated winery. Like, yes, all wineries have their family brand, but then they have like some fanciful brand that's still produced by that entity. Um, Sketch was the, the idea was to create a brand that was independent from any winery that eventually could maybe in, in with a big goal become its own winery one day, but it's not really a produced by a known a known entity, uh, even though Vinovium is known, it's still minor in the grand scheme of things. Sketch could stand on its own, and so the idea of creating a brand that could have its own life was important and kind of an opportunity and a gap in the in the market that we saw for Texas wines. Um, and then the idea to to put great local art to it was kind of the 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 kicker that would drive it into the market. Right. So we had like a one, two punch, if you will. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. Turns out that Julia's wife, Mila Sketch, was like an internationally acclaimed sketch artist. <laughs> Perfect. And it was just like this beautiful situation um, to create really, really great art. And uh, if you haven't heard of Mila Sketch, you can Google her Mila Sketch or at Mila Sketch is her Instagram. Um but her art is all over the world uh, and it's highly detailed art. You know, it's art that's so detailed that the art takes on a life of its own. Like the art comes to life and to be able to visually tell a story when there's a lot of story to be told is really important. 
And again, going back to kind of the Venovium challenge, we there's so many stories for us to tell that we sometimes struggle with that. And with Sketch, it created it created focus on the on the wine and the style in terms of what the art looks like. It's uh, you know a really kind of detailed uh, leaf, if you will, the leaf of the fruit, leaf of the grape, and then inside the leaf is the aromatic structural profile of the, of the wine. So it gives you some talking points when you present the bottle, but it allowed an opportunity to to create a a new category for us, a premium category, if you will, that stood alone. That was kind of the traditional classic way of presenting wine under bottle, under cork. Uh, and COVID really, you know, COVID really took a hit to, to, to sketch, you know, and I think that we are slowly but surely rebounding. We were able to, as I mentioned, we had to divert the 2018 vintage of sketch to keg, which became social distance. Um, and that, and that wine is spectacular. Even today it was in the, so it was in the top 30 list that was in the Texas Monthly article of the top of the Texas Vintners Cup. It was in the top 30 wines. And then the Sketch 2016, which was the inaugural release, um, that was in the top 12 of the Vintners Cup and the Texas Monthly top 12 wines of 2021. And so... I think that we were able to release 2017 last year. We didn't yet submit that wines to any competitions or reviews of any kind. Um, we will, and to kind of see how that wine will perform. I do think that that wine will outshine the 2016 in a few years. Um, and I think that if we had the ability to bottle 2018 sketch, I think that would be the best wine of the, th- of the three vintages so far. Um, but, but I think that it just tells a story that we're able to produce this premium product tell a really great story um, and, and deliver it in a way that uh, it's you, you gotta, we kind of just want to have it. I mean, that's our objective is to make a brand that has limited production, but it's a brand that you want to follow and, and track and at least buy one bottle a year. Um, and so uh, last year we reached the 2017 red. Um, I don't know. There is wine allocated for the 2019 sketch red, but I don't know if that's going to get released this year. Um, the 2021 sketch white will be released this year. And then we may pause until we kind of, there's a, there's a lot of marketing things that are, we're trying to get off the ground with sketch, the website, the kind of the, the social media content there's while we're producing the wines, we're still not doing the things that need to be done on the marketing side to push that brand over the top. And so we're, we're slowly getting there, but COVID has really kind of hit, hit sketch in the mouth a bit. Um, but we're going to figure it out. And I think it's the, the brand is too compelling. The art is too great to, to not pursue it. So absolutely. We first met, I don't know if you remember this, but I went to a Whole Foods event back, I think it was in 2017, maybe mm-hmm. um, that was Texas wine versus the world. And I believe that was an event put on by the Texas wine journal. Um, yeah. But either way, you were the teacher. And so we tasted, um, a bunch of wines from Texas and I guess paired next to wines from different places in the world that were of a similar style or um, varietal composition or what have you. Um, tell me how did the idea come for that event? And I, I go back and forth on whether or not I think it's always important to compare the Texas wine to the similar wine in the world. I mean, at some, some people may argue that you should just appreciate Texas wine for what it is. I I personally started drinking wines 
from other places in the world before Texas and appreciating them. And so that comp- comparison is interesting to me, um, but I could argue it both ways. Hey, that's a really good conversation. Um, the wine professional in me says, it's not that we're comparing grape for grape or style for style, but there's precedent for what something should be. And I think uh, there's been a lot of confusion, like even during the journal days, when you have a group of professional tasters come in and they taste the wine and they say, well, it doesn't taste like whatever whatever the grape that they're tasting, but it's a good wine. And I like this wine and I want to drink this wine, but it doesn't taste like X, what y, I've Z. had before from Spain. Exactly. Right. That is a, that is very much a challenge. Right. Um, I think that the, the, the reason why being under being able to understand what, let's say, Viognier in Texas tastes like compared to Viognier in France or Viognier from Australia or whatever um, is important because of the way that the the. And again, this this is I'm dividing. I'm, I'm going to divide the planet really into half. You have consumers and you have non-consumers. Non-consumers being your professional trade, your media, your journalists, whatever. People on the buyer side, the industry side, they are trained. Like we we go to classes. We are like, this is what a duck looks like. This is what a duck tastes like. If it's not, doesn't look and taste like this duck, then it's probably a goose, right? Um, the, that So there's that, that in itself presents a challenge when you start to have a producer that's communicating both to the industry side and to the consumer side. That producer has to say, okay, I got to make a wine that the industry will appreciate. Uh, and then I also got to make a wine that the consumer will appreciate and then buy. The limitation on the pr- industry side is once they say, when they are tasting wines for a program or whatever, there's only so many places you can put a, a Viognier on a program. And so uh, those that want to buy a Viognier expect a Viognier to be a certain way. And so even though the wine is good and delicious and I want to drink it and buy it, I can't I can't give it real estate because there's only so much real estate I can give to let's say a Viognier. On the other side, the consumer the consumer is like I don't care, I just want a good glass of wine. Um and so the sale is much easier. So going back to Texas versus the world, it it, it the whole thing is is rooted in this idea that <clears throat> One, quality for quality, whether they are similar in terms of flavors is different, but quality for quality, can they compete? That was kind of the basis of it. The whole idea for Texas versus the world came out before Venovium. I did a, we used to host monthly blind tastings in Austin at at the old Barley Swine, which was so amazing. We did them once a month on Sundays and we would pack the place out and we would host a blind tasting session. And Every once in a while, we would throw in a ringer. It would be a Texas a Texas wine. Um, and it was just a fun conversation about how what they thought it was turned out to be good, but not at all what they thought it was. Uh, and that kind of precipitated another event. And my background before Venovium, I did a lot of restaurant consulting and event planning. And so events, I was creating events all over the place. So Texas versus the world at its height, we were doing a Texas versus the world theme tasting once a month in four cities. And that kind of when the nonprofit got involved, 
We then turned that into kind of a collaboration with Whole Foods. And then Whole Foods took it and put it in once a month in three stores in Austin, Austin, Houston, and Dallas. And then, and then it kind of, the world kind of shifted, right? Um, I think Whole Foods was a great partner for that. I I wish we still had that the ability to do that event experience with them because they have a huge megaphone. Um, there was limitations there in terms of when when Amazon bought Whole Foods, the buying no longer happened at the store level. So these local wines that are very limited, they didn't want to deal with kind of the the purchasing of that you know, and what that meant in terms of all the paperwork and delivering. And it just became more of a hassle to deal with small brands. Um, but the, but the series continues. So we, we, we do do that series here at Venovium, Texas versus the world. There's five of those tastings scheduled this year. And the way that we used to do it in the past was it was kind of just this insane tasting of 20 wines, 10 Texas, 10 non-Texas. Uh, and it was an opportunity for consumers to meet and greet winemakers. And they each had their opportunity to speak about their brands and their wine that they brought. And it was all done blind. And then at the end of the, at the end of the tasting, we would do the reveal that slowly morphed into let's create a rudimentary way for people in that tasting to rate wines. And then let's publish those results. So then we were getting really great feedback from the consumer side of, of this. Uh, and then the scale of it was, how do we do this more? And the reality is the only way to do that more was to kind of structure a panel of tasters, even though they weren't consumers, but to create the feedback loop was really important. So that's kind of how the, the idea of the journal came out was from these, the consumer Texas versus the world tastings that kind of morphed into less, getting them to submit a score for each wine that we would then average and then publish those results. Um, that turned into, okay, we want to taste more wines every year. How do we do that? Then that turned into let's taste monthly with a panel. Every month was a different theme or style. Um, and then I think at the height, we were tasting anywhere between 300 and 400 wines a year, um, which was really awesome. You know, I, I really miss those days. I bet you've actually tasted so many Texas wines compared to the general person in the trade, even, I mean, because you've been so deliberate about your tastings. I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'm going to do a lightning round and have you give me like brief responses to a bunch of different topics that we didn't get to. Um, But my final question for you is what do you think about the press coverage that Texas wine has gotten just in the last five years or so? And has it been accurate? Has it been complete? And what stories about Texas wine do you think are still needing to be told? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, one, I'm grateful for any publicity the Texas wine industry receives, whether it's incomplete or complete or to my liking. I think even the fact that they're mentioning us on a consistent basis, it seems like every other month or every month, there's some something about the Texas wine industry. Um, I, I have experienced on a, a number of times and get and given we are a really small operation. I think our equivalent case comparison, um, we're, we sell anywhere between 2,500 and 3000 cases equivalent a year, even though they're in kegs. So we're not a large operation. We do see a good number of people because of our location, but it's not anything compared to some of our neighbors. Right. Um, so given that being said, I have experienced people coming into our tasting room that have come to Texas for Texas wine. 
Like they, they are living out of state. They came here because they heard Texas wine has a wine industry or Texas has a wine industry. They, they are able to piggyback on the fact that we're in so close proximity to Fredericksburg, which is a tourist destination, Austin, which obviously Austin is like becoming the center of the universe. It seems like for the entire country. Um, and San Antonio is also booming. I think that the, the, the catalyst that the media and the publications provide is just awareness, which is super important. And then they're like, maybe a year from now, they're like, where should we go vacation? And then they say, well, Austin's out here. Austin's cool. They got a great food and music scene. And then when they get here, they realize, oh, Hill Country is only an hour away. Um, so I think that it's definitely having the impact in terms of awareness. I think the, the, the quality of the content um, I don't think that's too early to tell. I, I think that they're they're telling the the stories that are the low hanging stories, and those low hanging stories are definitely wins, and we should we should show them off, um, as they do in every other industry. But there is a deeper story here, um, and I think that it's still too early for those high level publications to really start talking about um, things like. Um, you know, challenges as it pertains to marketing, you know, like as a topic, not that that's a consumer topic anyway, but like for me, for us in the industry, it's like, how do, how does an emerging region actually stand on its own two feet in terms of its global, its global uh, perception and, and, and uh, things like that. Things like the issue that we have in the Texas high plains and there's lawsuits against Monsanto. These are major agricultural stories um, that aren't really consumer stories, but it's part of the bigger story. And I think the 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 outlook that that you hear and you talk about with the growers in the high plains as it pertains to that particular issue, like what's their outlook? Like how, what do they think about their industry five ten years from now? You know, uh, is this just a moment in time where we're dealing with this frustration? So I think that there's certain issues that aren't being talked about, but they may not be well suited for a publication like a national wine magazine. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that the low hanging fruit stories are being talked about, which is nice. I, and you know, people kind of give, give gripe that it's always the same producers being mentioned. It's always the same producers being mentioned. Well, who cares? You know, they're, they're talking about Texas wines at the end of the day. I think that it is very much still uh, an industry that's rising. We talk about the, you know, the famous saying, the tide rises all ships. I think that that is true. I don't think that even though there's like 180, 200 wineries in the hill country now, I don't think that we're at saturation. Um, I think we're really far from it. Um, sure. And so I think that as long as they're talking about us, we're good. I think the time for griping about, hey, how come you didn't mention me? I think that what are you doing to be mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? You know, um, I, the idea of how do people even know about you? This I remember um, several years ago, there was a session at one of the Hill Country Symposiums or Twiga, I can't remember. And they were talking about how to get how to get your brand known, how to get your wine known. It's like, well, what are you doing to get your wine known? Are you, is it are you just sending it to places to get medals? Because medals... I'm I'm gonna I'm not a metal fan. I don't like sending wines to competitions in that regard. And this is um, my personal opinion: is that they live for a moment, right? You get a medal, you mention it for a for a day on your social media, and the next day no one cares about it. Um, and so 
I, I don't think that medals are really the thing to chase because competitions are inconsistent on every level, just because I've managed competitions, I've competed in competitions. I know how they're run. Um, I have major issues with competitions personally as a professional. Um, but not to say that another brand, that's not good for them. Um, I, but how do you get your wines into the hands of the people that can talk about it is the question, whether you're submitting it to national media or your local influencer, you know, mm-hmm. Your local influencer can probably do more for your brand than wine enthusiasts can in terms of driving attention to it. And so I think that that combination of things is important. This is going to be hard for you, but I'm going to, I know you're up for it. I'm going to give you a Texas wine topic. Okay. And I want to give you, I want you to give me like 10 seconds of your thoughts. Okay. High level, high level. Um, Underrated Texas wine producers. (laughs) Um, there's a lot of them so just one whatever you can get in 10 seconds dang girl (laughs) this is that's a is that too touchy it's not touchy because there's so many because we work with so many you know like i don't want to leave anybody out um i guess i guess the people that i would mention right off of like let me give you three names um, my, my three names would be, um, Michael Barton at Hilmi, um, Grayson, um, Grayson Davies at RK. And then my third would be, uh, probably Joanna at Petternalis. Excellent. Petnat. Um, incomplete. Incomplete data. Uh, no, incomplete wine. They didn't finish oh. it. I'm not a okay. fan. I mean, I, I appreciate the style. It gets the region making sparkling wines, but the, the, there's a problem. If you can't open that bottle and serve the full bottle, that's a consumer problem. It's not fair to the consumer to buy it because buy it for $30 inflated Texas pricing and then have to deal with the complication of losing half the bottle because it's still fermenting in the bottle. You know, so I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's incomplete production. And I don't think that's a, a good product. Blanc de Bois. Uh, all for it. Love it. It's the Chenin Blanc of Texas. What style is your favorite? Well, that's the thing with Blanc de Bois is that you can produce every single style. You so know, it, it's it can go from dry to sweet. Uh, it can go from still to fortified. It can go to sparkling. It is for me. It's it is the most versatile grape in Texas. Dry rosé. Um, love it. What style? I heard that there was some uh, discussion on past data points, Saunier versus direct press. Uh, they both can produce good styles. Uh, I just think that it, what's the preference of your consumer? Do they need fleshier, fruitier styles? Then do the Saunier style. If, you need, if you're trying to sell that rosé to a restaurant in a market like Austin, do straight press because that's what the buyers want. Um, so I think both are delicious. Both have the ability to be delicious. I think once you start producing rosés above 13, 13.5% alcohol by volume, you start to get into a really difficult area. Vintage variation. Um, this goes back to what I define as a summary of Texas wine and the Texas wine industry in general, that we are the Mediterranean of the new world. 
And what that means is that vintage, vintage to vintage is the story. You know, we are not, uh, you know, producing wines in a bubble like places like Washington and California and Mendoza, where every single year is the same and they have the ability to hyper focus on a varietal. We have to hyper focus on terroir. Sweet wine. I like it. Uh, <laughs> uh, sweet wine, I think, has a bad rap. In Texas or overall in the world. I think in the U.S. it has a bad rap. I mean, you give, you know, the the, the Riesling situation, there's amazing Rieslings that are sweet and people kind of don't like them because they're sweet and they don't, they haven't learned to appreciate it, even though it is sweet. Aging Texas wine. Um, Minimum three years for reds. Any maximum? What's the, what's something great you've tasted that's really old uh i think the best texas wine i had was a 1985 cab from pheasant ridge um that was probably the best wine i've had the the old uh um blue mountain cabs from 1982 i, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to talk to with mara and dan sharp yet that, that not on the podcast but yeah they're okay. awesome i'm that, excited about what they're doing yeah that story is incredible and the wine that patrick johnson made back in that day um, stellar, incredible wine. Um, I, my question about old Texas wines is what happened? <laughs> like what happened in the eighties, mid eighties, late eighties, early nineties to make those wines that were of that level that we even talk about today. What happened to the decade of the nineties? Like where are those wines? I don't understand. I, I don't. I never really understood that. Like we, they they're out there, but they weren't as good, or at least from my experience, they weren't as good. But what happened to that wine in the mid to late nineties, early two thousands? Where where did that expertise go? I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't had much old Texas wine, so okay. Um, couple more sub AVAs or new AVAs for Texas. The new frontier, for sure. That that has to happen, um, which is exciting. Which is exciting because you look at the Texas Hill Country and you look at all the different microcosms of the Hill Country, which is profound. Like we source grapes from two non AVAs that are appellated Texas Viognier from from a vineyard in a High Cross Vineyard in Sonora that Alan Fetty makes for us, um, and then Tempranillo from the Bosque River Valley where. Valley Mills Vineyard is like incredible wines across the board that are just Texas or even like where Grayson and RK is. He's making incredible Chardonnay and Syrah up there that they are pushing for AVA status, but technically they're in Texoma um, mm-hmm. and they need their own sub AVA. So it's, I think that's a big push for the future. Yeah. Patrick Whitehead had some interesting thoughts about Texoma when he was on my podcast. He's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> is that episode out? Yeah. Yeah. That was a, uh month or so ago, I guess. Well, I've covered all of my questions. I mean, I have way more, but we'll have to save them for another time. Sure. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure and mention? Um, I guess just a little cheerleading for Vinovium. Um, so this year, this is a personal story uh, at this point. So this year, uh, we, we started to implement our succession planning here at Vinovium, which means that partners that 
partners have left and partner and and job roles are starting to transition. And so my role is shifting to kind of take over Craig's role, Craig, Craig Mayer, my business partner, to kind of do more of that administrative compliance back of the house stuff, which means that my role in the tasting room has shifted also. And so the, the team there is, is rejuggling itself and, and which is, they're all really good things. Growth is happening. This is how we're maturing. Um, I think that, that it speaks kind of to the, the, uh, the importance of one, how to manage a business properly. You know, I think, uh, that the idea of how to how to grow mature people up within your organization and then also understanding when a change needs to be made is very important but i say all that because those of you that are know me and have been to a class or support my business know that that my my life in this business is is getting deeper the roots are growing deeper and that if you haven't come out to support vinovium please come out you know it's important that that you see what we do, I think, because it is a business model that is entirely unique within the Texas wine industry. And I think that it allows us, again, to produce really consistent wines year over year, but tell a really great story in the same time and also have fun in the process. So I, I kind of want to just do a little cheerleading for, for myself in terms of come out and support me, um, because this is more and more my business every each and every year. Um, and also to say thank you to our our customers that have been out and to our members that have continued to support us over the last 10 years, if you will. Uh, it's been a beautiful ride and I hope that it, that it continues. Uh, and then some things that are happening this year that are exciting. Um, there's some changes on the property that are going to be happening. And as those kind of come out, just be aware. And then if you've never attended any of our events, um, there's a ton of events. Every month we do a lot of events and then every quarter we do a big event. Uh, and so our big quarterly event, uh, um, our big quarterly event this quarter is on March 27th, which is Nacho and Friends, which celebrates all of our favorite four-legged canines, which is a day of dogs. So, you know, so bring your dog, come have a good time. It's a day of music uh, and food and bands and a bunch of dog vendors and hopefully your best friend. And then our big wine festival for the year is uh, the second quarter, which is the Memorial Day weekend. So it's a Saturday, Sunday, two-day wine and music festival. And so hopefully you can come for that too, Shelley. And and my dog Duke is available as well, he says. So yes, I love we're it. There. I love it. That'll be a good time. So yeah, yeah. I, I just want to say thanks. And if you haven't come out, come out. You know, that's really what I would ask. Well, it's definitely worth your time. And um, I love what you guys are doing and hope that uh, everyone else gets in on it too, because there's there's a lot of education to be had and fun to be had at Venovium. So where should people follow you guys on social media? So the hashtags are all the same. It's at VenoviumTX and then the website's Venovium.wine. So that's it. Thanks so much, Daniel. Next up, demerits and gold stars. I like to recognize impressive or clever things that are going on in the Texas wine world, and I do that by awarding gold stars. I also occasionally see things that are dumb or unfortunate, and those get a demerit. Let's start with the gold star. Seems like everyone is getting in on the true crime bandwagon. There's even a podcast called Texas Wine and True Crime. 
Casaro Wines has joined in on this trend, and they're sponsoring a true crime and wine night a couple of times a month. An upcoming class is called A Cup of Murder. It's about a serial killer who used wine to commit murder. So if you enjoy true crime, check it out at Casaro Winery. That's in Ovilla, which is about 20 minutes south of Dallas. And maybe this will even happen in their soon-to-be-open tasting room in Corsicana. Gold star to Casaro Winery. And my demerit goes to authors and publications that write and publish really lousy articles about Texas wine. I feel like some of these articles are actually written by bots. The latest example is from the website moneyinc.com. In an article, 10 Wineries You Should Visit Near Dallas, the author said, Some wineries specialize in specific flavors, while others offer a tasting experience like no other. That's profound. The first winery that is recommended in this article is Flat Creek Estate Winery and Vineyards. She said it's near Dallas. Okay, but Flat Creek Estate Winery is in Marble Falls, which is about 214 miles away from my home in Dallas. Next, she recommends Spicewood Vineyards, which is in Spicewood, Texas, also over 200 miles away. And also Grape Creek Vineyards Tasting Room on Main Street in Fredericksburg. That one is 267 miles away, so you get the idea. So that's demerit-worthy for sure. If you're inclined to support this podcast, you can do that by visiting thisistexaswine.com and clicking on the Support the Podcast tab. As you know, this podcast runs on Texas wine. Alternatively, you can invite me to your table at the Texas Wine Auction in April. Thanks, y'all. Get in touch. Email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. And I'm at texaswinepod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover for the promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Join me in two weeks for my next episode. I'll be talking with Chris Hornbaker of Eden Hill Winery in Salina. Cheers, y'all.